Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the appointment of a special counsel by Attorney General Merrick Garland to handle both the likely prosecutions of Donald Trump in both the January 16th insurrection and Mar-a-Lago documents cases. Joining us to assess whether the indictment of Trump, which even Bill Barr expects, will be delayed, is Frederick Barron, who formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General, Special Assistant to the Attorney General, and Director of the Executive Office for National Security in the Department of Justice. Then we'll examine why the Democrats lost the House in a close election in which the avoidable losses in the deep blue state of New York alone cost them a majority. Joining us is Michael Lee, who serves as Senior Counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program, where his work focuses on redistricting voting rights and elections. His latest report at the Brennan Center is The Redistricting Landscape 2021-2022. to Then finally, with some pension funds taking a hit from the collapse of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange, we'll investigate a little-known aspect of Wall Street's ability to loot Main Street via pension funds, which are hardly regulated even though the Department of Labor grants QPAM, QPAM, authority to BlackRock and giant banks to invest for pension funds. Joining us from the UK is John Christensen, the founder of the Tax Justice Network and former head of Government Economic Service, who was a company and trust administrator in the Channel Islands of Jersey and served as economic advisor to the Jersey government. Currently, he's the chair of Stamp Out Poverty. Also joining us is Jim Henry, an economist, lawyer and investigative journalist who has written extensively about global banking, debt crises, tax havens and economic development, the former chief economist at McKinsey & Company. He's the founder of the Institute for Access to Public Information, co-founder with David K. Johnson of DCReport.org, and is the author of Blood Bankers. Jim and John just testified in a public hearing on Thursday before the United States Department of Labor, arguing for stronger oversight of QPAM pension funds. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Frederick Barron, who formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General, Special Assistant to the Attorney General, and Director of the Executive Office for National Security in the Department of Justice. Welcome to Background Briefing, Frederick Barron. Thanks a lot. Glad to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Frederick. And with the announcement on Thursday by Attorney General Merrick Garland that he's appointing a special counsel, Jack Smith, to handle both the likely prosecutions of Donald Trump in both the January 6th insurrection and the Mar-a-Lago document cases, do you think that the indictment of Trump, which even Bill Barr expects, will be delayed by this appointment? Uh, no, I don't. I, I know there are many 
uh, expert commentators who are concerned about whether this will give rise to a prolonged delay. And I myself was concerned about that when the idea was first raised in the abstract uh, a couple months ago. But uh, in the the specific context that was framed by Merrick Garland when he just announced this on November 18, and in the response that came from Jack Smith, who's being designated as his uh, special counsel, uh, what came through loud and clear was that they are envisioning this as a means of facilitating the investigation, which has been enormous, and um, bringing it to a head and moving it forward, and, and they are publicly committing that this won't cause delay. And um, when you put the pieces together, uh, I believe what you see is a larger picture where you realize that there's a need for some highly talented uh, independent lawyers with prosecutorial experience to step into lead roles right now and bring the whole thing in, into focus, make key prosecutorial decisions, and then push it forward uh, with the ability uh, and the professional experience to play the lead roles at trial or in arguing critical motions, regardless of, of how far the, the motions go up the appellate chain, which could include the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, this special prosecutor, I'm sorry, the special counsel process uh, is... Uh, staffing them up with an all-star team that enables them to make the decisions, uh, uh, f fight it, uh, fight it on on legal grounds uh, in the appellate courts, and uh, conduct a, tr a very high visibility trial uh, with best possible talent available. When Mary Garland announced the appointment of Jack Smith, who didn't appear because he apparently had a bicycle accident. AG said, based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Well, it was no mystery that Donald Trump was going to announce that he was running. I'm just curious to understand, Frederick, why didn't the DOJ move and preempt Trump? Why did they allow him to sort of beat them to the punch, if you will? Uh, I don't think he beat them to any punch. In other words, I, I think you're right that uh, we could all see that, that this was a strong possibility that Trump would end up running for uh, election again. Uh, but uh, there's no victory that Donald Trump has won here. And in fact, I think uh, the most sophisticated legal observers uh, could look at uh, what what's happening right now and what a strong reaction is coming from the Trump people and and read the tea leaves that say that the Trump people actually feel that the appointment of the special prosecutor is a big problem for them. And it's, it's not that they've won a victory here by by, uh, quote unquote, forcing justice to appoint a special prosecutor or a special counsel. It's a the, the, the current statute that applies here is called special counsel. Uh, but rather that um, what, what, what a, a kind of a trained professional eye would see here is that it, it's, it, it would have taken an enormous amount of time to conduct this complex investigation with literally hundreds of potential 
uh, sources who were involved in the events of, of January 6th in particular. And now that we've arrived at this point, um, the appointment of a special prosecutor um, creates a premise for reaching into the outside world and bringing in um, three or four absolutely stellar veteran prosecutors who are doing other things at the moment and who've now been brought back into the fold to take the lead on this. And this is a signal of seriousness that Merrick Garland wouldn't be making this move unless there was a serious probability uh, that indictments might issue. Um, and, and he's doing it in a way that actually gives him a heat shield against political heat for uh, claimed biases. In other words, if he hadn't appointed a special counsel, which I do not believe was legally required, it was permitted but not legally required, but if he hadn't appointed a special counsel, then the Trump people would be uh, using that as a, as a publicity weapon during the entire process, claiming that there's, there's a terrible bias here. Uh, and, and the fact that he's appointed a special counsel allows him to say, look, I put in somebody in the lead, Jack Smith, who, who is, I, I believe, registered as an independent, has no political affiliation, uh, and has, is, is simply a professional prosecutor. So uh, that won't stop the Trump people from making uh, uh, cries of, of bias, but it really dampens them down and, and in, in effect, diffuses uh, the, uh, the complaints that they would otherwise have. Well, the, the latter point is well taken because even if you even if you had Mother Teresa as the uh, special prosecutor, Trump would still cry foul. I mean, his whole training via his mentor Roy Cohn is to be preemptive and to attack the law and to attack whoever's prosecuting him. You know, and also even the the judges. I mean, he's proven to be incredibly. Right. proactive over his life, and he's dodged so many bullets that that's the concern that many have, that at what point will somebody... He's had two impeachments, after all, um, or two attempted at impeaching him. That's the issue here. So what what do you think's going on in Merrick Garland's mind? I mean, I take it... Well, well uh, first, go, the, go on the point that you've just raised, um, if you go back to the Robert Mueller special counsel investigation, um, and you remember how viciously Robert Mueller's character was attacked and motivations were attacked, uh, then uh, you need to add to that the dimension that Robert Mueller was a Republican, and he had, he had been appointed to be the head of the FBI uh, and served under presidents of both parties. Uh, and so um, that didn't, the fact that you you had someone of his own party prosecuting him uh, d didn't really stop one iota um, the the complaints that were coming. Uh, you just have to scrape that all away and keep an eye on what is being proved in the case and what is the jury likely to do with it. And the big difference here is in an impeachment trial, the the ultimate resolution involved a, a majority vote in the Senate. Uh, not, I'm sorry, not a majority vote, but a supermajority vote, so that even though they had more than a majority in favor of impeachment, they didn't win. At a, at a jury trial, you're dealing with 
a small cast of characters who are not elected officials and, and aren't running for offices in the future and don't have political motives, presumably, who are simply uh, there to listen as, as citizens to what is the evidence, what is the law, and what's the right thing to do. Sure. But Trump has already cast Jack Smith as the corrupt and highly political Justice Department just appointed a super-radical left prosecutor. So so that raises the question, why is, is Merrick Garland being deferential to Trump in any way, given the predictable nature of Trump's response? I, I, don't, I don't think he's being deferential at all. First of all, the characterization you just conveyed uh, that apparently is coming from Trump now of Jack Smith has no grounding in reality whatsoever. And so you can't prevent Trump or his people from saying whatever they want to say uh, in this process. But I think uh, what's, what's happening here is that um, there will be noise made about any move that, that pushes things further down the path toward an actual prosecution. At every step, there will be noise, and there will be cr- cries that, that, that it's, everything's political when it isn't. But, but if you step back from it, I think you're watching more of a master chess game being, being played by um, ultimately uh, one of the smartest, most seasoned, seasoned uh, prosecutorial and judicial minds of our time, who is Merrick Garland, the attorney general, and, and, and Merrick is moving the process forward with an eye toward doing what is right so that later on um, a, a jury will feel that Trump has been treated fairly. And if the thing is appealed, even as it goes up the line, even to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, he's trying to do things in a way that would leave him in the purest and most strategic position uh, to keep winning the victories uh, in the courts uh, without regard to what flaming things Trump may say along the way. So, Frederick Brown, just looking at Mr. Smith's record, you know, from 2008 to 2010, he worked in the Office of the Prosecutor at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, and then he came back to the U.S. and was appointed head of the Public Integrity Section. He did quite soon thereafter, drop a bunch of cases against congressional lawmakers, including Senator John Ensign of Nevada, Representative Tom DeLay of Texas, Jerry Lewis of California, Alan Mollahan of West Virginia, and Don Young of Alaska. And then later on, he lost a campaign finance case against John Edwards, the former Democratic senator from North Carolina in the 2004 nominee for vice president. And then in 2013, he won a conviction of the former Representative Rick Renzi, Republican of Arizona, who spent two years in prison and was pardoned by Donald Trump. He did successfully prosecute Jeffrey Sterling, a former CIA officer, convicted of mishandling national security secrets. So that's definitely in line with the new job that he has. And then he, later on, more recently, Mr. Smith won a corruption conviction against the former governor of Virginia, Bob McDonald, which the Supreme Court unanimously overturned. So I'm just, that's a sketch of some of the big cases. So you win some and you lose some. What do you, what do you make of his record? Well, um, first, I, I, I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe that his work on international war crimes 
was one of the most recent things he's done after a long uh, period of leading the public integrity section of the Justice Department. But as you said, he's he's been involved in many, many high-profile prosecutions, whether as the, the lead trial lawyer or as the, the, the chief of the section uh, and the ultimate supervisor of the trial lawyers who are bringing these uh, public corruption cases. And so he knows how those cases are put together. Um, he, he knows how juries react to evidence in those cases. Um, so he, he's, he's one of the people who would be uh, absolutely best equipped to uh, make a sensible decision about whether there are strong charges here when you put all the evidence together how strong are the charges? And if, if you believe they're strong enough to indict, then what do you have to do to win the case? He's someone who would have literally tried numerous cases uh, that have many similarities uh, to this one. And so he, he would be a master at putting those cases together. Also, there's one other dimension that he's handled, which was, uh, I, I believe, um, a prosecution uh, of a CIA officer who uh, was accused of leaking classified information. So he's got experience even in, in that realm, you know, the realm of the uh, case that would involve the classified documents taken to Mar-a-Lago, in addition to lots of involvement with cases that have one similarity or another to the events of January 6th and any kind of, of conspiracy that may or may not have existed there. So, so I, I, in that sense, uh, I mean, no, no, no one wins every case, but he would understand what it takes to put together uh, a, a case w and, and increase or maximize the odds of success. But, Frederick, is there a case already? That's what I'm wondering about. If you've got Bill Barr, the former Attorney General, basically saying on the PBS program firing line that Given what's gone on, I think they probably have the evidence that would check that box. In other words, an indictment. They have the case, and it's increasingly more likely that Trump will be indicted. So do you think that the DOJ is close to indicting and that Jack Smith will sort of have to sort of play catch up on, on all the work that's been done so far? Or is he there to sort of tie all these pieces together? since there are two separate yeah. cases, the January 6th and the you know, in, uh, in a way, documents. I think, I think the odds, the, the answer to your question is, is yes, yes, and yes, meaning this, that uh, I do think that, that they would not be moving forward with these highest level uh, special counsel appointments of people who they're, they're um, able to uh, take away from um, really uh, significant jobs in, in the in the private sector or other important jobs in the government, uh, they're they're able to bring these people back. I believe because everyone knows behind the scenes there is a very serious prospect that they will go forward with one or both of of these prosecutions, uh, Mar-a-Lago or the January six uh, prosecutions. Uh, secondly, um, I think that uh, that that there are probably many people involved who have the same intuitive sense of it that Bill Barr had, which is, looks like there's a real case there that can be brought. But um, the, the missing link is that behind the scenes, you have probably had literally hundreds 
of investigators, primarily from the FBI, but perhaps from other agencies, and prosecutors involved in uh, investigating things that, that are building and working up the chain toward the people who were driving the events of January 6th. And what I mean is that uh, the Justice Department has already been involved in some 900 uh, prosecutions of people involved with those events. So there's an enormous amount of evidence that's been marshaled, um, just fleets of witnesses who, who have not only the people who've been prosecuted who may have been turned into cooperators, but people who were witnesses uh, in those cases, um, probably literally tens of thousands of text messages and emails that have been discovered in this investigative process. So it's a gigantic massive information. And you could say, oh, well, uh, that it should be easy to present this case because there's an overwhelming amount of evidence. But it is not easy to any veteran uh, trial lawyer or prosecutor. It's not easy to think about um, what does this all boil down to? Uh, what, you know, there's only so much that can go through the eye of the needle of a presentation to a jury. So what, what are the pick hits of all of those witnesses and all of those documents and text messages, and what kind of case does that add up to? And uh, in this situation, I think it's, it's Jack Smith and um, uh, some other uh, stellar veteran prosecutors, uh, uh, David Rohde and David Raskin, who've been brought in precisely to sit down with the legions of lawyers and, and investigators and, all, and their reports and get briefed and ask very tough questions for what would probably be days or weeks and try to distill it down to its essence so that they can make a good, intelligent decision about, uh, you know, is it really winnable? And if it is, um, how do we pick and choose from among that gigantic mass of evidence to put the strongest possible case together? So that, they have to go through that exercise if they want to maximize their chances of winning, but they've picked uh, some of the folks who would be among the best possible uh, prosecutors to make those decisions wisely and strategically, and then to literally walk into court and, and present the case. So just in the last minute then, can you give us a kind of timeline? Do you think how long this will take? Because after all, the January 6th committee will be dissolved by the Republicans the minute they take the House in January and they'll begin doing investigations into Hunter Biden's laptop and God knows what else. So the environment is going to be very hostile to Jack Smith yeah. and the DOJ. Yeah, the, the, that what you say is true. The, the environment may be hostile and there'll be all kinds of red herrings thrown out into the public discourse uh, by investigative committees on the House side uh, where the Republicans will now be, in effect, seeking their pound of flesh uh, by investigating anything real or imagined that they think uh, will catch the public imagination. So that will all be happening. But that's all nearly smoke uh, when it comes to um, this prosecutorial process, because this is not this is not a battle for viewers on television. It's not it's not a battle for uh, winning publicity poll or public opinion polls. It's it's merely a question of putting criminal cases together and then presenting them to to 12 citizens who who are sitting there for what could be weeks of trial listening to loads of evidence before they make a decision and and knowing how to do that the the right way so 
to answer your question about where are we on the timeline, I think what may be most likely to happen here is that um, after this initial round of publicity over the fact that they've pulled a special uh, counsel team together, there's going to be a long period of relative silence, and then there will be all kinds of public chatter about how, gee, Trump outsmarted them and the Justice Department is dragging their feet and the special prosecutor is no different and is, is delaying and nothing's happening. And that will be the chatter. And then uh, one day out of the blue, there will be indictments and subpoenas and, and cases will be brought. And, and, and then that will come down like a ton of bricks that, that this, this is real. The cases now exist and deadlines are being set for people to uh, for for the first hearings to be held and and you could literally have people uh, arrested uh, and booked and then maybe let out let out on bail uh, during the course of of the hearing but but these will be very dramatic events which will become very real and all the the nattering that went on for months about uh, uh, were we outmaneuvered, uh, was there a lot of foot dragging, all of that will go away and there'll be this tremendous suspense over how things will come out at trial. Well, Frederick Barron, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it very much. Thanks very much. And again, I've been speaking with Frederick Barron, who formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General, Special Assistant to the Attorney General, and Director of the Executive Office for National Security in the Department of Justice. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into why the Democrats lost the House in a close election in which the avoidable losses in the deep blue state of New York alone cost them a majority. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Lee, who serves as the Senior Counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program, where his work focuses on redistricting, voting rights, and elections. And his latest report at the Brennan Center is The Redistricting Landscape 2021-2022. to Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Lee. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a lot of, um, actually not a lot of coverage, but at least there's a recognition that there was some extraordinary amount of gerrymandering that helped the Republicans win the House, particularly in Florida and in in the other key swing state of Ohio. That election was actually conducted on completely illegal maps that nevertheless the Republicans were able to go ahead and have this election in their favor but in in the case of New York, you could make the case, surely, that the loss of those four Democratic seats in New York, in the bluest of blue states, might well have tipped the House to the Republicans, which is extraordinary that a blue state, and also seats were lost out here in California, another blue state, Republicans picked up seats from Democrats. So... I find that extraordinary, and that seems to me a story that hasn't been told. So 
Uh, you're quoted in an article at the Washington Post, Michael, New York Democrats may have cost their party the House. What happened? So what happened? Well, there, Democrats certainly underperformed in New York, losing seats that you wouldn't necessarily have expected them to lose in a cycle that wasn't especially bad for, for Democrats. You know, Democrats, I think, surprised a lot of people. Um, you know, going into the midterm elections, going into election night, I think many people thought it was going to be a wipeout for, for Democrats. It didn't turn out to be nearly a red tsunami. It, it barely turned out to be, you know, sort of a, a a red puttering wave. And yet Democrats lost districts in New York state that Joe Biden won in 2020 by 10 points or in one case by 15 points. Um, you know, these are very good Democratic districts. Um, and although some people have pointed the finger at redistricting and the fact that a court ordered New York to redraw its congressional map, the districts that um, the, the special master drew that Democrats lost are still very, very Democratic districts. They just there are districts that, um, you know, had Democrats simply done as well as uh, Democrats in New York had simply done as well as Democrats in Kansas. They would have easily held and they just didn't. And so for whatever reason. There was Democratic underperformance in New York, um, you know, and in particular, um, there's one district that they lost um, upstate, but, uh, you know, in the central New York region. But most of the, the districts that they lost are in Long Island or the Hudson Valley. And, you know, it just may be that those districts, which are all in the New York City media market, just had a very different um, political environment this year. The political headwinds in favor of Republicans may just have been very overwhelming, whether that's Lee Zeldin running a very aggressive campaign for governor, whether it's the issue of crime, which may have played out differently in the New York City area than elsewhere, we don't know. But, you know, we do know that Democrats seem to have significantly, significantly underperformed Democrats elsewhere in the country. And that um, may be close to the Republican margin in the, the House. So when the courts rejected the redistricting map, the new map was drawn by somebody that I understand that had no basic experience, an academic, a political scientist at Carnegie Mellon. Was that a problem? Well, the, the special master that the court appointed had been a redistricting advisor to the body that drew the Pennsylvania's legislative districts. Um, you know, the, in the Pennsylvania legislative districts are drawn, drawn by an apportionment board, and they selected an outside expert. He is an expert in the area of redistricting, and they, they, he helped them draw the maps there. And, and it turns out that Democrats in Pennsylvania have taken control of the state house um, for the first time in, in many years. And so, um, you know, he's certainly well qualified to draw these maps. I, I do think that one of the things that played in is in New York, the the litigation resolved very late, like really on the eve of New York's um, election and, and, you know, for primary elections. And, and so, you know, there wasn't a lot of time for the special master to draw the maps. He didn't have a chance to go and have hearings. He didn't have a chance to, you know, sort of really spend a lot of time on this. It was, he produced one set of maps, people commented on them. He did make some changes in response to those comments, including from democratic lawmakers. Um, but then, um, you know, the maps had to be final for the election. And that I think, you know, is a product of the fact that, you know, the, the litigation in New York played out very late. And, and some of the, I think some of the mistakes that Democrats made, um, you know, that prompted that, 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 that litigation, right? Because, you know, Democrats, uh, I think it should not be lost, did draw a very aggressive gerrymander in New York State that tried to dock out a bunch of Republican incumbents. Um, 
and it just turned out, you know, like, you know, that that may have been a little bit too, too aggressive. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, and, and that uh, prompted the court to strike down the maps um, and order them to be redrawn. You know, I think if Democrats have been just a little less aggressive instead of trying to knock out, you know, to, re- to reduce Republicans to four seats and, you know, out of the 26, um, you know, maybe that they, they would have gotten uh, a, a map more to their liking. So you were saying earlier, Michael Lee, that this is more to do with the underperformance of the Democrats because you can compare to some of the red states where the Democrats actually picked up seats by a small percentage, but at least they picked up seats with a 10-point advantage in New York, yeah. they managed to lose. It's pretty hard to get your head around that. So you don't think, therefore, that the, uh, what, $11 million that the billionaire super PAC uh, that Ron Lauder, Estee Lauder's son, the heir to uh, a fortune, he spent his entire life uh, avoiding taxes. That's his main contribution to humanity. Did that, his $11 million super PAC, Spending, it helped Lee Zeldin, but did it hurt any of these uh, House Democrats who lost? It, it may have. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, there, I think there's a lot of postmortem to be done. We do know, you know, that, you know, in, in Long Island and, and in the Hudson Valley, which was, cl- which are close to New York City, you know, there was a big movement against Democrats, you know, even larger than elsewhere in the state. You know, New York did drift consistently across the board toward, um, toward Republicans, um, but nowhere more um, than in in Hudson Valley and Long Island, and you know I think you know that has to do something with the dialogue, right? You know the sort of like the bail reform, the crime, and all you know all of that. Um, it's interesting that like Democrats also seem to have struggled um, in Northern New Jersey, which is not in New York, of course, but you know also but is in the New York media market, right? So all the people in Northern New Jersey are getting the same sort of messages about crime and you know New York City being out of control, and that may have played a role in there. But I think, you know, the, the, there will be a long postmortem that, that needs to take place, um, including, you know, whether Democrats, you know, adequately spent money on getting out the vote and motivating their voters or whether they thought they maybe had this more in the bag than the, it turns out that they did. So there's been a, a lot of recriminations, has there not, over the seat that Mondaire Jones had, that head of the DCCC, he then ran in that district and then he's the guy that was parceling out money to Democrats around the country. He lost his own seat, right? He did. Uh, you know, Munder Jones uh, formerly represented the 17th district. Um, you know, after the special master's map came out, Sean Patrick Maloney decided to move from a district further up in the Hudson Valley um, down to this district, which is closer to New York City. On paper, it's a better Democratic district. It's more Joe Biden won by a larger percentage than in the district that, that Sean Patrick Maloney used to to represent. But it turns out the Democrats held the district that Sean Patrick Maloney used to represent and lost the district that he moved down to to run in. And, you know, again, that just may be that, you know, that area is a little bit further away from New York City. So some of the issues that were especially um, resident to, to people who are in the, you know, the New York media market, the New York television market just may not have played out the same a little further. And so maybe Congressman Maloney, Congressman Maloney would have done better had he stayed in his original district rather than moving down. So there's a criticism that I've uh, heard in going on down in Florida, criticizing uh, Manny Diaz, the head of the Democratic Party down there, for being out of touch. And the Democratic Party is full of some serious deadwood 
particularly in terms of people who run campaigns, uh, that a lot of them are serial losers, but yet they stay on forever. What do you make of the criticism of Jay Jacobs, the longtime ally of Cuomo? He chairs the New York State Democratic Committee. There's people blaming him. Is that fair? Um, well, the Bernie Center is a nonpartisan organization, so I'm not going to comment too much on internal Democratic politics, other than to say that you know, like Democrats, you know, um, you know, for you know, a, a while have sort of struggled in New York elections. I mean, you know, the, you know, there was, you know, part of the the reason that the the maps in New York ended up in court is because the redistricting commission deadlocked, and it, it's really easy to deadlock, um, and that threw it into the courts, and Democrats. Uh, in 2020 tried to pass a constitutional amendment that, that said, like, if the, the commission deadlocks, the legislature will draw the maps. And that went down to defeat in, in 2020, even as Joe Biden won the state, in part because Republicans put several million dollars into um, telling people upstate to vote no on it. And, and there was very little Democratic effort to sort of turn out the vote there. So part of the problem, part of the reason that the maps ended up in court is because Democrats didn't win um, approval of the constitutional amendment that they tried to pass in 2020. And I think there has been criticism. I'll leave it to others to judge whether that's fair or not, that, that Democrats sort of, you know, didn't do what Republicans did and try to get out the vote. You know, we spend part of our time. Um, I do. I spend part of my time upstate. And I know I got mail from Republicans. I'm not a Republican, but I got mail from Republicans telling me to vote no on this constitutional amendment. I did not hear anything from Democrats. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, like, you know, they're, there may be some internal looking that, you know, I think people need to, to do. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, does this criticism then of Kathy Hochul being a drag on the ticket, the current governor, is that fair? Um, I, I, I think we have to wait till we get more granular detail. You know, the most um, important information is going to be how well she did at the precinct level. And we can kind of get a better sense of that. But, you know, for whatever reason, you know, Democrats across the, the board underperformed. You, even Chuck Schumer, who, who won re-election to the Senate, um, you know, won by a much smaller margin than he did in the past. There are members of Congress in New York City who who, who got 60 percent of the vote, but normally they would get much more than that. And so it, it just was a tough night for Democrats in New York. It, like it was a tough night for Democrats in Florida, right? You know, most of the country that moved toward um, you know, it, it was basically status quo, maybe a little bit of a movement to the right, you know, a little bit movement to the left. Um, but in New York um, and Florida, there was a big movement to, to toward Republicans, just as there was a big movement in some states toward Democrats like Michigan. And so, um, you know, why that is, I think, will be a very interesting question. And I'm sure the subject of, of many fights to come. Well, just in closing, now, you mentioned that crime was a big issue and it may have hurt the Democrats, particularly when they lost a seat in Manhattan itself. Could that be traced to perhaps the stupidest slogan ever in American politics, defund the police? Uh, well, well Dem- Dem- Democrats did not manage to win a seat in Staten Island and, and South Brooklyn, um, you know, which interestingly is you know probably the most suburban part of uh, <laughs> the 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 five boroughs right you know and like you know, around the country i mean i think what you saw was like it's really the suburbs that were competitive because generally you know the cities across the country are fairly blue and oftentimes really deep blue rural areas are fairly red it's the suburbs that are purple or light pink light blue um, and Democrats did not, you know, thought they might have a chance to win a district in Staten Island and South Brooklyn. They didn't. Um, 
but that's also the most suburban sort of areas. And suburban voters, you know, are really animated by things like crime. You know, like suburban voters have lots of interest and they pull in different directions, sometimes toward Democrats, sometimes toward Republicans. Um, but, you know, I think it really is, you know, I, I do think like for suburban voters, crime was a big issue, but I, I'm not sure, you know, we'll have to parse it out to see whether it was the ultimate driver of, of how people voted. Well, I thank you for joining us, uh, Michael Lee, and explaining why the Democrats lost the House in New York. Not the House in New York, but the House in, in Washington, D.C., as a result of the underperformance of Democrats in the deepest of deep blue states. It's, it's quite, a, quite a mystery. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Lee, who serves as a senior counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program, where his work focuses on redistricting, voting rights and elections. And his latest report at the Brennan Center is The Redistricting Landscape 2021-2022. to We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into a little-known aspect of Wall Street's ability to loot Main Street via pension funds, which are hardly regulated, even though the Department of Labor grants authority to giant banks to invest for pension funds. New York, I love you, but you're freaking me out. There's a ton of the twist, but we're fresh out of shout. Like a death in the hall that you hear through your wall. New York, I love you. But you're bringing me down. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is John Christensen, the former head of government economic service, who was a company and trust administrator in the Channel Islands of Jersey and served as economic advisor to the Jersey government. Currently, he's the chair of Stamp Out Poverty and the founder of the Tax Justice Network. And also joining us is Jim Henry, an economist, lawyer, and investigative journalist who has written extensively about global banking, tax crises, tax havens, and economic development. The former chief economist at McKinsey and Company, he is the co-founder of the Institute for Access to Public Information and the co-founder with David K. Johnson of DCReports.org, and he is the author of Blood Bankers. And they just took part in a public hearing on Thursday at the United States Department of Labor on stronger oversight of QPAM pension funds. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Christensen and Jim Henry. Good to be with you. Well, thank you. And let me begin with you, John. A couple of definitions here we need for the audience. What is a QPAM pension fund? QPAM stands for um, Qualified Professional Asset, asset Managers. Uh, th- these are recognized as uh, companies, typically banks or fund managers, who are allowed to advise and uh, administer pension funds um, on behalf of the fund holders. And typically they are not, uh, they're not checked on, they're they're, they're not recorded, they're not registered by the Department of Labor, but they're allowed to continue in that that professional role as, as fund asset managers, even if they have had um, been indicted and convicted uh, in overseas courts, whatever. They, the, 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 the problem we have with QPAM is that it's a fairly lax regime. Um, and in quite a few cases, some of the world's 
biggest banks which have had which have been indicted and taken to court successfully in other countries continue to act in a QPAM role in the United States. Um, and that is a reason why we are, we are challenging the Department of Labor and saying to the Department of Labor, you need to pay more attention to the, the risks that arise from allowing such organizations to act as QPAMs. So, Jim Henry, the hearing on Thursday before the Labor Department over QPAMs, and QPAMs, I take it, is a privilege, and I'm not sure about what oversight the Department of Labor has, but my understanding is that the American Bankers Association fought hard to stop the hearing and to make it in secret as opposed to in public, and BlackRock and other big lobbyists also weighed in. So tell us about how the hearing took place and what you were up against on Thursday since you you and John testified, along with a, an expert from Germany on Credit Suisse, which has an incredible track record of criminality. Well, the history of this, as John described, uh, you know, QPAM status is a uh, highly valued privilege that uh, major banks and uh, asset managers uh, like uh, BlackRock value dearly. Um, in 2015, we went to uh, the DOL and asked them in the wake of Credit Suisse pleading guilty uh, to a 2.6 billion, getting a 2.6 billion dollar fine for helping uh, wealthy Americans uh, facilitate. Uh, tax evasion to the tune of more than $20 billion. We asked uh, the DOL to ex exercise its jurisdiction uh, and kick uh, Credit Suisse out of the QPAM program, uh, but they gave them a five-year waiver. Uh, they gave them another waiver in 2019. And so this most recent hearing, seven years later, uh, you know, after they rejected our advice, uh, they were reacting to the fact that they had found that Credit Suisse had been convicted again in uh, last year uh, for defrauding Mozambique. They were convicted by the Justice Department. Um, so finally, the Department of Labor just this year was uh, moved to uh, try to, to, to kick Credit Suisse out of this program. It's quite a valuable program for these banks. Um, but uh, it uh, also proposed reforms that would allow it to have the Department of Labor to have much tougher standards uh, with respect to uh, you know, the enforcement of uh, the rule that says if you are a corporate felon and you're engaged in systematic crime, uh, you can't be advising U.S. pension funds, public funds. So, I mean, that's an important step forward. The industry is up in uh, in arms about this. We had uh, members from the Security Investment Managers Association, uh, the uh, American Bankers Association, uh, all of whom are having huge contributions for companies like BlackRock, uh, the world's largest uh, asset manager, um, you know, saying that no regulation is needed. Uh, you know, they've essentially uh, forgotten about 2008. They've forgotten about, two, you know, the Credit Suisse examples. And uh, they just say, trust us. You know, we are perfectly well. We've tried for th for 50 years to trust uh, these these institutions to regulate themselves. And we see time and again uh, where the decisions uh, that have been made have, you know, just been too generous to the banks. If they had listened to us in 2015, they would have probably saved uh, Credit Suisse from near bankruptcy where it is right now. But there are all, also a lot of other uh, major 
uh, financial institutions that are deeply involved in this and involved in uh, in serious uh, corporate uh, financial uh, crimes. And uh, so what we're arguing for is the Department of Labor has to get off the dime. It has to be able to look at foreign convictions. It has to be able to look at deferred prosecution agreements uh, in addition to just U.S. convictions uh, when it's when it's talking about this. And it has to take note of the fact, uh, you know, that the top uh, funds that it's uh, dealing with here, these top fund managers have engaged in hundreds of financial crimes. I mean, in the case of Credit Suisse, we had 35 convictions uh, from 2000 to 2022. Morgan Stanley, 60 HSBC 28, uh, UBS 50, uh, Goldman Sachs 33. I mean, these are all major uh, financial institutions that have been essentially serial corporate uh, felons. And as John can talk about with the case of HSBC, uh, I found uh, Morgan Stanley uh, in South Africa uh, facilitating tax evasion for the wealthiest guy in South Africa. Uh, setting up 15 offshore companies, a, a sort of virtually unaudible network to, you know, sh shelter his funds abroad and have a def uh, defraud the South African uh, IRS. I mean, just two years ago. Um, so the point is, we are uh, basically crying out that, uh, especially in these times with scandals like FTX, uh, you know, this is the time for more regulation, not less. So let me ask uh, John in the UK. John, Jim just mentioned FTX. One of the victims of, of the collapse of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange was the Canadian Teachers Pension Fund. And it seems to me that at the very least there's a clash of different cultures and politics. So working people tend to be, you know, say support the Democrats and Wall Street people tend to support the Republicans. So what's the cultural clash there with, these, with the idea that these guys on Wall Street are handling the money of ordinary people? And there's a big division between Wall Street and Main Street. Main Street bailed out Wall Street in 2008, and Wall Street basically just is running roughshod over Main Street. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's totally extraordinary when you think that um, Wall Street is investing in highly risk, high, really high risk, uh, things like cryptocurrencies and the FTX um, on behalf of pensioners, most of whom are quite rightly very risk averse. And the risk of FTX is, 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 is an extreme case. But here you have um, a bohemian registered FTX exchange, which the Bahamians seem to have, be, to have been totally incapable of regulating at any level. Uh, the Prime Minister Bahamas said yesterday that uh, they weren't aware of any particular risks. The regulators seem not to have taken paid any attention whatsoever to FTX. We now know that FTX were not keeping any kind of uh, records, formalized financial records, uh, and, and, and auditors seem to have paid no attention whatsoever to FTX. The whole thing was a blown-up balloon with no real assets, no cash, nothing behind it whatsoever. 
and yet pension funds have been investing in this. So this is an extraordinary level of risk-taking, and no uh, asset manager should be putting pensioners' funds into high-risk no, I, would, I don't even want to describe it as an asset because it isn't really an asset. There are no underlying assets whatsoever. What the hell has happened here? How could this possibly have happened? It's a massive failure. Uh, and that is the reason why we are so concerned now about uh, the, the, the QPAM exemption. Because when you have people working in banks and other asset management organizations who are prepared to take extraordinary risks with other people's other people's money, in other words, your pension fund, my pension fund, everybody's pension fund, um, and they 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 only have the upside. They take their fees and they take their bonuses, but we have to carry the 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 losses. Um, it, it is long overdue that the Department of Labour completely revises um, their standards, their, the way in which they regulate the QPAM exemption, and look much more far greater rigor. So, Jim, Henry, what happened at the hearing? Did you get any, any sense from the Department of Labor that they're listening, that they recognize that there's a problem here with working people's life savings in a pension fund that they desperately need being toyed around with by a bunch of sort of sociopaths on Wall Street who only care, who are just driven by greed and who we've seen their behavior? And, of course, the whole point about Wall Street is that they never want to be regulated, and that's what led to the crash in 2008, getting rid of the Glass-Steagall yeah. Act. So this is, yeah, you know... Exactly. I mean, I think that they agreed with us that, you know, for example, it's just outrageous that even as of today, the Department of Labor doesn't even have a list of the pension asset managers that are claiming QPAM status. Uh, secondly... You know, the only way they find out about these things is when a big one gets indicted and comes in to do a settlement like Credit Suisse did. Um, but I'm not sure. I mean, this is a very powerful industry. It's a global industry. You know, the U.K. pension funds just this week uh, have had been forced to sell assets to cover their cash obligations because of they were caught by the unfunded tax cuts of the trust administration there. And who bought the assets? Uh, Blackstone, uh, Apollo, the same people that are advising these folks uh, at a discount. Why were these pension funds in the UK investing in collateralized loan obligations where they're using these very fancy securities purchases backed by uh, debt from non-investing uh, companies? I mean, that's just a perfect example, in addition to FDX, of pension funds that are trying to uh, protect ordinary people's money, investing in all kinds of exotic uh, securities that that don't pay off at the behest of uh, these financial advisors. So the Department of Labor, you know, uh, the, the fact is that the top 30 uh, asset managers in the world uh, uh, spent about 1.4 trillion, uh, 1.4 billion dollars of political contributions and lobbying money. Uh, since 2012. Just this year, they've spent nearly $100 million uh, on lobbying and po uh, political contributions. So there's no question, uh, this is really, I think, a bipartisan problem. Neither party has distinguished itself by getting out from under uh, the influence of these banksters. But, you know, U.S. pension funds are now about uh, $10 trillion, public funds, uh, you know, CalPERS is the largest, we have worldwide about 24 trillion in 
public pension funds. So it's a big number and it can affect, uh, you know, the valuation of uh, everybody's assets in, in not only pension fund assets, but also ordinary investors in stock markets. So we all have a real interest in the Department of Labor and foreign uh, regulators getting off the dime on this issue because it jeopardizes everyone's savings. So just in the last couple of minutes, let me ask John uh, Christensen about what seems to be a David and Goliath struggle that you and Jim and others are trying to get the Department of Labor to regulate or at least pay more attention to the fact that these big financial institutions have the privilege through this QPAM regime of handling pension fund money, which Jim just explained how much money there is involved. Clearly, this is important to the these financial institutions, but they've got the political power, obviously, uh, and the lobbying power. So just give us a sense of where where this David and Goliath struggle, where it's heading. Is there any sense that the DOL will step up and protect the life savings of so many workers on pensions? Well, you're right to describe it as a David and Goliath uh, struggle. But what strikes me is that there is there certainly are grounds, sufficient grounds for concern amongst the DOL people. They recognize many of the issues. They recognize that we are living in extremely fragile times and, and many countries are going into recession. What strikes me is that um, they they are receptive to some of the ideas that we put forward. I mean, Jim's already mentioned, for example, that QPAM exempted uh, advisors, under, not, they're not even registered. So you approach the DOL and they don't keep a list of those companies, those banks, those fund managers who are currently enjoying QPAM's privilege. So um, that's a starting point. But I, mean, I suggested to the DOL that in addition, they should require an annual notification from the principles of any QPAM exempted uh, or, or bank or, or fund manager. Uh, they, they, the principles should provide an annual declaration stating that their organization has not engaged in any prohibited misconduct that might render, render them ineligible to, to hold to continue to hold QPAM status. Now that's a very very modest uh, request or demand, um, uh, easily uh, easily undertaken by the um, by the QPAM exempt organisation. But it would then give uh, pension funds some sense of whether or not they were dealing with bits and proper persons. Um, we also suggested that banks or fund managers that have been uh, found guilty of criminal conduct or, or misconduct, they should be named and shamed. Because we know that naming and shaming is a very powerful deterrent. Um, and, and, and finally, one of the things that I'm particularly keen on, throughout my career, uh, if investigating high-level frauds within the finance sector, I, I know that I've, we've had to rely very extensively on whistleblowers, and whistleblowers need to be better protected from the truly vindictive treatment they're likely to get from Wall Street players. So there you have three clear suggestions about how the DOL can can. Um, proceed. They're, they're fairly modest, but they would be immensely helpful to have 
just a listing of which organisations, which banks, which fund managers have been given QPAM exemption and are those organisations still fit and proper and, and, and worthy of holding that kind of privileged status. Well, I thank both of you for joining us here today, John Christensen from the UK and Jim Henry. Thank you very much. Thanks. And again, I've been speaking with John Christensen in the UK. He's the former head of government economic service who was a company and trust administrator in the Channel Islands of Jersey and served as an economic advisor to the Jersey government. And currently he's the chair of Stamp Out Poverty and the founder of the Tax Justice Network. And also joining us was Jim Henry, an economist, lawyer and investigative journalist who has written extensively about global banking, debt crises, tax havens and economic development the former chief economist at McKinsey & Company. He's the co-founder of the Institute for Access to Public Information, and he co-founded with David K. Johnston, dcreports.org, and he's the author of Blood Bankers. And they just took part in a public hearing at the United States Department of Labor on stronger oversight of QPAM pension funds. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Well